Patricia Grace is returning with Birdchild and Other Stories. It's a new collection which spans mythology and contemporary Maori life and reimagines ancient tales. She joined me in the studio this week along with her granddaughter, Miriama Grace Smith, an artist and curator whose artwork features on the book's cover. I asked Patricia how the collection came about. I had been working on, on the story, the long story in the bird child for some time, not knowing quite where it would go. I think wanting it as part of a collection started when I wanted to have a look at the childhood stories. That's in the middle section of, of the book, part two. Um, looking back on those, I kind of wanted to get them together, do a little bit of, quite a lot of work on on them and get them into a coherent kind of sequence. I'd been wanting to do that for a long time, but realised that in themselves they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be enough for a collection, a whole collection. So then I was taking up this new interest of mine in Pūrāko, Waiata, Oriori, uh, and um, the ancient types of song poetry and, and so forth, and being fascinated by the, the language that was in them and the stories themselves, even though I only had access to them in English, into the English translations. So that was... Uh, that type of story, the bird child one, is my own invention, and the others in that part are reimagined ancient stories. What was it about some of those ancient stories that was pulling you towards looking at them further and to and to doing that work on them? Well, they're just such great stories, really, with all sorts of heroes and anti-heroes and everything in them that makes a good story. But also they were told in a language that was not what you would usually think of as literature these days. But I thought, why not, you know? What do you mean by that? Um, Deeply emotional. um, The type of language that was very ornate and the opposite of what I was used to doing which is pared back and simple and blah, blah, blah. You know, (laughs) this was the opposite. It was all bountiful. What do you think you get from... Because I guess it's a short story. You can read a short story on its own. But by reading the whole collection together, what is the gift that you're giving the reader? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what they will take from it. I suppose all I want it to be is a good read, but that means it has to satisfy me, you know, rather than me trying to satisfy uh, readers. So I'm the first reader and the the one has to take responsibility for what comes out, you know. How harsh a critic are you of yourself on that? Well, I find a lot of satisfaction in doing the best that I can do. You know, I wouldn't be satisfied if I wasn't doing the best that I can do, whatever that best might be. So um, I don't think that's being hard on myself. That's being 
easy on myself. (laughs) 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 That's me getting satisfaction. The short story is in itself a... um, It's a real art form. It's a very disciplined form of writing. What is it about that that you find so attractive? Sometimes I think of it as a short story as being like a a little gem that you just polish and polish and polish and polish until it's as shiny as it can be. That's how I think of them. And when you were doing the research and thinking about pulling this collection together, I noticed in the acknowledgements that you mentioned the research that you'd done on traditional Māori parenting. Tell me a little bit about the influence that that exerted and the importance of that. I had to hunt for something that would give me some information about that, you know, coming to that understanding of of what the birth of a child meant and what it meant to have people in your iwi, you know, necessary to do what was needed for the life of the whole community and everyone taking part in that. So each new child was someone who was going to take a vital part in that community and that culture. I think in the hierarchy as well, where the child fitted into the hierarchy of that that particular group of people. Miriama, you're here as well. I can hear you in the background very beautifully nodding and... um, agreeing and the cover that you have created the artwork on the cover of this book is really extraordinary and really beautiful how did you come to be part of this collection of this this publication and what was your response to the work that your nana has produced within it i was um yeah asked um, by Penguin and um, I think Nana as well to um, do the cover for the book and um, that cover there is inspired by the first story Bird Child and um, yeah I was just agreeing with what Nana mm. was saying because I was really inspired by this story and I think a big part of um, for Māori is um, we think of everyone when um, our Fano, our, our um, yeah, hapu and Everyone kind of has a role um, within our whānau and um, it's not just about ourselves, it's about um, how we can all work together and grow together. Mm. Um, and what I loved about that story was, yeah, looking back at how we used to, well, we still do now, but um, I guess it was very, you know, it was about survival back then. It wasn't just about um, surviving um, from enemies and things like that. Um, and there might be someone that loses a life for mm. their people, but they still had a really um, pivotal role for their people mm. as well. Tell me a little bit about the image. How would you describe it for people who are listening who aren't able, unfortunately, to see it right in front of them right now? How would you describe it? That is um, from the story. I was wanting to kind of capture... Um, the aroha that these two main characters felt and um, their adornment that um, um, Nana had talked about in the story mm. and how important each 
one of those um, pieces are that they're wearing and also I think capture the aroha and um, sadness as well that I think they might have felt in the story. It's really beautiful. I can't tell how it was done. Is it painted? Is it printed? I was trying to work out what medium it is. Um, I now work on my um, iPad for like illustration work. I used to do it all by hand, uh-huh. but um, these days I work on my iPad um, just because it's easier and like just quicker and um, different like mediums you can do these days. Wow. Yeah. So that's just um, on a digital artwork. Oh, wow, that makes sense, actually, because I couldn't quite work out how you'd put that together. It's got that kind of beautiful clarity, but at the same time, it's got the texture to it as yeah. well. In this story, the tāne who's pictured, he wears a, um, a kakahu kuri, a, a, a mm. quick matter of dog fur. So I wanted to um, capture that in some way <laughs> with the strokes. Yes. Yeah. Patricia, to come back to you... You mentioned the the retelling of, you know, of some of the myths and some of the legends being something that you were wanting to explore. I guess it's an interesting time, which we might talk about later, that this book is being published into. It's interesting to think about and to give time and space for some of these foundational stories. How do you think they land now? How do you think they're heard by people in Aotearoa? these days? I think there's room for reimagining them and they seem to have been well received in the past. I was thinking, um, say in the reimagining of the story of Mahuika, I've always thought of Mahuika as a kind of a lonely soul, you know? So I wanted to put more joy into that story and I, I really enjoyed doing that, giving her companions and you know, the things of today when your children all leave home and you're there alone, maybe there is another life for a parent once the children mm. have gone. What was it like for you when your children grew up and began to leave home? Oh, they've never moved far away. Mm. Um, I've got my family on three sides of me and... The furthest one away is where Miriam lives in Paikakareki. <laughs> That's the furthest any of them have gone. So I live alone in my house, but it's not like living alone. Mm. Mm. I was intrigued um, reading about how, certainly how you used to write, and maybe it's how you still write. Instead of being away in a room on your own, you're at the kitchen table. And you must have been surrounded for a lot of the writing by quite a lot of people. Uh, yes, yes, I, I learned to do that, to fit in with what else I was doing. I have an office now. Oh, I've had an office for some years, really, ever since I became a full-time writer. Mm. But it was when the children were little. I certainly didn't want to shut them out of my life in any way because they were my... First responsibility. What do you think that brought to your storytelling? Because you're, you're kind of at the centre of things, I guess, at the kitchen table. Yes. And there's a lot of people maybe who need to call on your time. But does that also give you, I guess, a different perspective on, on how you write, on what you write, um, having that different environment around you? 
Yes. Otherwise, what else would I have to write about, in a way? I think when the publishers, or did I do it, I don't know, named my autobiography from the centre, mm-hmm. I think that sums it up, really. It's writing from the centre, from within, and putting it out there, not from without and bringing it in. So I think that's always been the case, even right through, really. Mm. Writing about what I know about coming from within me, but then you're also also part of that is the research that you do, the thoughts, the dreams, everything that you have here. And I guess you create your your characters, you your imaginings of the people, and that very much to me always seems to be what is driving. Somehow seems the wrong word, but it, it's very much the characters who lead the story. Yes, yes, that's always been very important to me. For me, it's just. So that's the main thing that's central, the characters, because everything else belongs to them. You know, the language, the the settings, the environments, the themes, they all belong to the character. So if if I feel as though I've got the character right, then everything else has to fit in with the character and the growth of the character in case of a novel where you want to see that development. So it depends on what the character's doing, Mm. uh, how they speak, what their relationships are and all of that. And so is it like that when you're going through that process of writing that the character takes it wherever the story is going to go. Yes. Or do you, do you have a, a sense of a plot line that you've kind of mapped out in advance, or is it very much you start and you see where you end up? Um, yes, starting to see where I end up, that's putting it correctly. You have a lot of extraneous material that you have to ditch <laughs> eventually, but um, as long as you can keep true to that character and who they are, what they do, that's important for me. Mm. I don't worry too much about storyline. I think that that belongs to the character as well. Miriama, I'm interested what your memories might be of of growing up, of seeing your nana writing and, and of that creative process and and how that's, I guess, influenced not just you but, you know, the, the very many creative people in your whānau. Um. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw actually seeing Nana writing. I think by then she had an office. Yeah. Um, oh, my mum's a writer, yes. and um, she does the same thing. She just she works in the kitchen, on the, <laughs> um, on the table most of the time. Yeah, it's been pretty. I mean, growing up around creatives is um, pretty normal for yeah. me. Um, now being a creative. I feel like I didn't realise until I got older um, how um, normal it is for me because um, just like some of the things that I've learnt um, that might be seen as quite, I know, the whole like, for me, it's I'm quite used to the unknown of what work might be coming my way. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really can plan a year ahead. <laughs> um, 
And I remember when I first went full-time, that was very normal for me because um, seeing my parents work like that and, you know, like, it's just, um, oh, like, there can be, like, the highs and then there's the lows. And um, I think, for me, I see those as kind of the same. They're just, you've got to have the highs to have, the lows to have the highs. So, yeah. I don't know if that made sense. But. No, it does make sense. And I guess it's interesting as well when you... Uh, if we can talk about cousins, um, yeah. because obviously you were the co-art director on the film version of Cousins, of course, written by your nana and co-directed by your mum as well. And having and that and written and yes, the final script was written by Briar. Yeah, yeah, and to have the Fano within the creative process, that must be an extraordinary way because you are able to already have some of those shorthand ways of communicating you mm. have that level of trust what does that bring to a project that kind of depth it made it way easier I, th- I think for me it did mm. and um I noticed that because I I have an idea of how mum's brain works mm. and there were there would be a few times where mum would be trying to explain something to like art department and then like what like not <laughs> understanding what she was trying to say and then me being able to understand straight away and then just explain it to everyone. Mm. And then me but, and then mum um, being grateful for that. And also um, I think as well when it's your whānau, you're not afraid to ask questions mm. and you're not afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, so like if you don't understand something, you, you I'll just ask. Mm. And um, having Nana there as well on set was amazing. So Nana was able to... Yeah, describe what she saw in the story, and um, and then basically my job was just trying my best to bring that into a visual on set kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but and also I learned a lot. I learned a lot that I didn't um, know. Yeah. Hmm. What kind of things do you do you think you take away from that from that process and from that that creative time of making that that you that perhaps you're able to utilize now in in some of your other creative work? Uh, what I really enjoyed about creating sets was getting to know the character and um, you're creating a character with different like ways that they might decorate their space and things. Mm. I think that says a lot about people that you don't really notice and um, objects and things they carry and um, also with wardrobe, I've worked in wardrobe as well, is like there's things that we collect at home that we might not necessarily realise we do that actually make us as a person. Mm. Um, they add to our character. Mm. Uh, it's what kind of sets us apart from each other. Mm. Amazing that I think I think Cousins was only the third feature film directed by Wahine Māori. Is that right? That seems extraordinary. Yeah, that, that you know that that's where we're at. But I think that's mm. where we're at. Mm. Actually, do you have any plans for any other novels to be turned into films? I'll only say maybe, I think, to that. Oh. <laughs> yes, but I won't elaborate because these things have a habit of falling through, don't they, Miriam? <laughs> yes. The whole the unknown. <laughs> it sounds like it's a maybe yes. Don't know. Saturday morning here on RNZ National. Susie Ferguson with you. My guests, Patricia Grace, of course, 
Writer, novelist, her latest collection of short stories, Bird Child, is what we're talking about. Also with us, Miriama Grace-Smith. She is a visual artist, a designer, a curator, a muralist. Uh, She has designed the cover for her grandmother's new collection. You're writing, Patricia. I don't know whether you saw it as political at first. Do you see it as as political now? I guess at the time you were were and are a real trailblazer and became an absolute literary giant. Yes, I was surprised when Portiki was... um described as a political novel. Mm. For me, it was just um, about the ordinary lives of Māori people Mm. and this being exposed, you know, how people felt about land and and language being taken away and uh, and culture and that, that sort of thing. Came in for a lot of criticism at the time, sort of rocking the boat, but I didn't know. I didn't know I was. I, I was okay with it being described like that when I looked into it. But I just thought I was writing about something that everybody knew about. And I didn't set out to be political at all. Mm. And that sort of, you know, it, I could have become more deliberately political as time went on. Or not so deliberate, but knowing that if I was writing about something or other, body parts being taken out in hospital and what, you know, baby's eyes being removed and the story coming around to explaining what an offence that was mm. to Māori people. So I kind of knew then that those were political thoughts, things that people might know, might not know about. And um, I think all writing should be political, really. Mm. Should be. Otherwise, what is it? You were a teacher. And I'm interested in your perspective on a couple of years back, the then Labour government were, you know, introducing a, a new history curriculum to schools that would have more stories of uh, Māori, of the indigenous culture. Uh, that was proposed. That's now being sort of rolled back, it seems, by the national-led government who are saying in quotes that they're wanting to restore balance. Does that actually mean that the outdated colonial history will continue to be perpetuated? And, and what is the damage there? I just don't know. I just don't understand, you know, the stepping backwards because it's not bringing balance, it's un- <laughs> it's doing the opposite. Um, I don't know whether it's going to be allowed to happen, is it? I can't see it. I mean, the politicians might be stepping backwards, but the people aren't going to go with them. Uh, I keep hearing them say that all the time. Oh, they can't, you know, my language is my language. I'll use it the way I want to use it when I want to use it. I haven't heard any agreement on what is happening right now from Māori people. Mm. Who does it serve if the voices and the stories of people who've been marginalised and silenced, instead of being told, remain quiet? It doesn't serve anybody. I don't know what some people might be afraid of. 
I was going to ask you that. What do you think people are afraid of? I don't really know. I think maybe, oh, if we allow this to happen for Māori people, we lose something, not realising that they don't lose. We all gain. In recent years, there's been a very big swing, a very big upswing in people being interested in learning te reo Māori, about learning uh, more about te ao Māori. Do you fear a backlash from where perhaps Aotearoa was to where we might go? There's always backlash. I always notice that about every 10 years or so. There's backlash. But also there's been progress, as you say, you know, progress among that and then there's backlash. And I, I still think it's that fear that if we give away if we allow this, then we give some away some of our power. I don't really understand it mm. because I don't think it's the case. Is it confusing that some of the political leaders who are pursuing this are themselves Māori? Yes, that's... Um, I think that they mustn't like themselves. They mustn't like who they are. That's all I can think of. Miriama, with the sort of work that you do around Indigenous art and modern, expressive indigeneity, how do you read the current political situation? Yeah, usually on my social media, I actually um, share quite a bit. I, with whatever current um, events are happening, I usually do create work and share it. I think it's important. Mm. Uh, right now what I think is going on is even more important that we keep telling our stories and um, as creatives and um, we keep um, doing that and not being afraid to do that. Maybe just a last word actually to you, Patricia. There's been a lot of Māori writers of all all stripes, if you like, whether it's journalism or... I guess, writing more opinion pieces, that we're seeing more of that kind of thing online or in newspapers, if, if anyone still buys, <laughs> buys newspapers. But also in, uh, you know, in books, in novels, there seems to be a Māori writing scene that, that has a pretty healthy and vibrant life to it. How has that changed over your time as a writer, and, and what changes have, have you seen that you are most pleased about? Yes, oh, I, th- I think it's great that there's such an abundance now, so many Māori writing in all the genres, and I can't even keep up with them because I'm not online very much, and I just keep thinking back to when we used to have workshops to try and build our numbers of of Māori who were writing and it happened very, very slowly. There were some very promising young writers when we were doing this but they all had to go away and be lawyers and doctors and things, you know. And so it's just been amazing recently. It's just such a great thing to happen, the flowering of all, all these writers in all different genres and just about in every competition you see at least one writer who's Māori up there and sometimes winning some, but still on the short list 
That's very heartening. And Patricia Grace's new collection, Bird Child and Other Stories, is out on February the 6th. Speaking there to Patricia Grace and also to her artist granddaughter, Miriama Grace Smith.